Hello, welcome to How to Write a Novel. So I thought I would do a little episode about the last chapter of this book, the one that I've been rambling about for many, many episodes now. It was the longest, most complicated chapter of the whole book. So I thought I'd go into a little more detail about that in particular, just what, what it's like when a chapter is uh, an insane megalith that takes forever. And I did in fact do that, but I recorded that audio last month. So I thought I'd do a little intro first with a little uh, more current update. So uh, this apartment I've been bunkered down in, my cousin's apartment, he moved out. He has a girl moving to town <laughs> to shack up with him. So there were three of us in this two-person apartment. It was kind of uh, kind of crowded. Now there's only two, but everything was in my cousin's name. So we've got to uh, take some responsibility. So the lease is going in the other guy's name and the utilities are going in mine. And it's just one of those things of like, ah, oh, man, I mean, I've been here forever because of Corona stuck in my hometown, but it's like, yeah, I guess I really am stuck. I mean, you know, I guess I could kind of like kid myself about it. Like I'm just, just waiting it out, batting down the hatches, wait out the storm. The storm ain't going anywhere. Fucking Corona, goddamn shit. <laughs> it's still all fucked everywhere. We're talking about another big time lockdown in this town. So it's like, it's weird because it's all expectation, I guess. I mean, I've been stuck here. I was gonna be stuck here. There's nowhere to go. My old lifestyle of just rambling around the earth, going to Airbnbs and hanging out at different weird coffee shops and taking random transit to random places in random cities, like completely irresponsible in the COVID world. You know, I, I don't travel for a reason. Like it feels like COVID is like, it's not necessarily that bad. If you just have somewhere specific to go and something specific to do and you're prepared and you take precautions, you'll probably be fine. But that's not how I traveled, you know? I just went to places and stayed there way too long and just mingled a lot for no reason. The world's not even close to being back to a point where that makes any kind of sense and it won't be for a long time. But this just like puts a stamp on it, makes it, <laughs> makes it more official. Like, yeah, I really am just stuck here. I'm really going nowhere. I guess I was feeling kind of bummed out about it. But then I went out for a walk out in the nice snowy woods and I'm walking uphill, so that helps. So I'm out in nature, I'm walking uphill, so that's like exercise. And then I thought I would just do this little podcast as the final cherry on top to just kind of loosen up all these thoughts in my brain, sort of try to help get past this mental log jam I've got. That it's like, yeah, I wish I was still in the old world, but I ain't. Is this world really so bad? Is it really so bad to be in this town? Because I was also thinking, as far as traveling goes, like, you know, I've got in, I got a lot of traveling under my belt, especially right before Corona. I mean, like the whole time I've been doing this podcast, it was pretty cool. It's like, hey, I'm in Vancouver. Oh, I'm in Toronto. Hey, I'm in Montreal. Whoa, I'm in Amsterdam. Hey, I'm in Tokyo. But I really did kind of get my fill of a lot of those places. The only one I really particularly would like to go back to is Japan, and they're fully shut down right now. 
But even if I did, like that place would be the worst for, like it has the most crowded transit. It would be the most irresponsible place to just go and ramble around and hang out at coffee shops and do nothing, would be Tokyo. So I was thinking, like, when Japan does reopen its borders, what if I just went to Fukuoka? Because that's the city I went to in the middle of my trip where I recorded all those podcasts on the mountain, just talking about writing ideas I had. So I was thinking, like, what if I just went to Fukuoka for, for three months, stayed on the outskirts, and hung out on the mountain? But then at that point, it's like, I'm on a mountain right now. I'm in the woods right now. <laughs> do I need to fly around the world to do that? You know, like, I'm trying to conceptualize of this to cognitively reframe it. So it's like, yeah, maybe this isn't so different. I mean, it's not. It's literally not so different. That other version would be more fun. Maybe this isn't so bad. I guess I'm just having a hard time convincing myself. <laughs> And ultimately, I mean, I really shouldn't complain. This really has been, throughout all of this pandemic stuff, one of the safest places ever. And it's just undeniable that when all that stuff happened with my dad being in the hospital, the only reason I was here, the only reason I got to see him is because a global pandemic made me stay home. Like, I just have nothing to complain about. And I just wish I could, I wish all those reasons, I wish the truth of it was enough. <laughs> but it's not, I don't know. But I guess it's like, I'm always like a fan of always thinking about the next thing. I feel like it really helps keep your head above water. It's hard to get down about a situation if you're always thinking about the next thing. I mean, like, traveling is a literal version of that. It doesn't really matter what happens in X, Y, or Z city, because I'll be in another one soon enough. And I've kind of been noticing that with my, uh, my roommates here in Atlantic Canada. Is like, it's hard to relate to them in some ways because they're not, like, artistically minded. They're not striving to create stuff. It is that like you come home from work and you just plop down and watch TV. <laughs> it's like, I don't like that feeling because I would rather feel like I'm getting things done and I'm working on things. And whatever might be like depressing in the present, being trapped in a global pandemic or a parent getting sick or whatever, even just general malaise, I always have that future vision, you know? Like, I'm always talking about, like, what if? Imagine if there was a movie and I directed it, and this is how I would do it. And it doesn't necessarily matter that much if any of that stuff really does happen, but it's that I can easily see it. I can imagine it. I believe that that could happen. I don't see any reason why it couldn't. And in a way, I think, like, living in the future is kind of cool, because it just takes the pressure off the present. Whatever's a little bit mundane and a little bit, you know, if you're spinning your wheels in the present, it's all right, because you're working toward something else. Maybe you'll get there, maybe you won't, but... But I've noticed other people, you know, they, they don't live that way. <laughs> they're, they're not working toward anything, really. Not in this all-or-nothing grand way that I am, where it's like, 
hey, maybe I'll be an all-time great writer. Maybe I won't, whatever, but that that's even on the table. It's a whole different wavelength, you know? Like, I don't know what to talk to people around here about. <laughs> I just don't even know how to have a conversation with them because it's like, I want to talk about going to the fucking moon, metaphorically speaking. And I guess that's just a lot harder to do <laughs> when you got paperwork in your name that says you are not going anywhere for some time. And then, yeah, as I started thinking it through, it's like, when is this ever gonna end? <laughs> you know, what the fuck? I mean, I guess eventually, eventually, I guess, Japan will open its borders. Things will calm down as much as they're gonna calm down. And I'll just have to fucking start traveling and just expect to get COVID. <laughs> that's just what's gonna have to happen, I guess. But that's not gonna happen for like at least a year. I'm here. But if I just focus on the upside, I mean, I've got all these woods near me. My big fantasy, my ultimate grand fantasy, imagine if I could go back to Fukuoka and go to Umabayashi Station and walk up Mount Arubayama, I think it was called. It's like, if I could do anything, that's what I would do. And this is not so different. I just gotta convince myself. But along those lines, one thing that has been kind of cool. So as I said, the coffee shops all shut down again. And the coffee shops were never especially fun around here anyway. It's mostly just Tim Hortons's, you know? It's not like going to a coffee shop in fucking Amsterdam. Even if I just went to a Starbucks in Amsterdam, it was still a Starbucks in Amsterdam, you know? That's quite inspiring. You feel very cool. I'm a cool writer man. It never felt like that around here, so whatever. So the coffee shops are closed, you know. They were not that fun to begin with. And as I was saying, uh, when my little phone with the slide-out keyboard broke, I just switched over to a proper Chromebook. So I dragged that out into the world with me. And it's been working out pretty well. As long as it's only medium cold, I'm really surprised how, how long I can sit down with the little Chromebook open, my little gloves on, and just do writing, which I just couldn't do with my phone because uh, it had such a tiny keyboard. I needed bare thumbs, <laughs> which would freeze off. But yeah, it's been working out surprisingly well. And then as snow hit, you know, before I was just walking out into the woods and just finding a fallen log somewhere and sitting on that and doing some writing. But once snow hits, it's like a really wet snow around here in Atlantic Canada. And uh, these trees absorb a crazy amount of water. Like you just can't sit down on a fallen tree, no matter what you do. I was like putting down raincoats to sit on and stuff and like waterproof shit and the water somehow gets through it. <laughs> and then your pants get wet and then you just gotta go home cause you're gonna die. Cause when you have wet stuff in the winter, hypothermia is the next step. So, uh, I mentioned that to my ma, and she's like, hey, I got this little camping chair that's just in the garage. And it's really cool. It's this little camping chair that has like a pouch built into it that you're supposed to like put your little picnic meal in. And I can just barely squeeze the Chromebook into there. So that's what I've been doing lately, is just hiking off into the snowy woods, just anywhere, just any random spot in the woods 
open up my little <laughs> camping chair and just sit on that and do some writing. And it's like, yeah, this is pretty cool, <laughs> you know? Fuck coffee shops, you know? I don't need a coffee shop. My coffee shop can be anywhere. And I was thinking this could be good in the summer because like obviously I'm always complaining about the mosquitoes around here. If I can get some like extendable poles and some mosquito netting, like maybe I can make a little mosquito tent, a little makeshift mosquito tent. Just sit down in my little camping chair, extend my little camping poles, put mosquito netting over it and just hang out there and just do writing wherever. And yeah, I don't know, it's not so bad. I've been kind of enjoying it. Oh, I wanted to mention too, this thing, I'm always saying how I hate writing at home. Like the reason I go to these extreme lengths to go for a hike, be it a hike through a city to a coffee shop or now just a hike through the woods to, to, a, to a nowhere instead of my camping chair, is like it just feels better in my brain. And I learned a little bit about that. There's this guy, The Healthy Gamer, I think is his YouTube channel. My friend Brad mentioned him to me and he like helps people with gaming addictions and stuff. And he was talking about, his example was like shower thoughts. You know, like when you're in the shower and you're just disconnected from all of your devices and all the people around you. And in a way, all of your worldly cares because there's nothing you can do about them while you're in the shower. And you know, everybody knows about shower thoughts. Everybody has those. You have like your big thought in the shower, like, oh, what a good idea. And there really is science behind that of just like your brain, it just uh, disconnects from a lot of staticky noise that's, you know, filling your day and a more creative side of your brain can open up. And like, that's absolutely what's happening here. That's why I like these walks because I don't have a data plan on my phone. Ever since my last burner broke, I can't even receive texts. Once I'm out in the world walking around, I'm disconnected from everything. So not only does it get my body going physically, but also it's like I'm in the shower. You know, if I walk for an hour or two or whatever, my brain really is on a different track, on a different wavelength. You really do have different kinds of thoughts. It was neat to hear about because it's like, I know this is true of me. Like I've experienced this phenomenon so many times, but it's nice to have a little confirmation that this is a thing, <laughs> you know, that I'm looking for the shower thoughts. I need to disconnect and go off and be by myself for a bit before I can do writing comfortably. However, sometimes even that is impossible because, you know, if it's rainy or snowy, it's tough. But, you know, if I really want to, I can go find a, an awning somewhere and hunker down under it and like if I really try hard, I can still go outside and do stuff. But in the dead of winter, we had a couple of days in a row where it was minus, it's minus 22 and then minus 20, which I looked up the Fahrenheit just so y'all Americans will know what I'm talking about. Like minus eight, minus seven, minus four Fahrenheit. Very fucking cold. And on those days, just like, it's too cold. <laughs> I cannot pull out my stupid computer and do writing. It's too cold. But even on those days, I've been doing better. I've been managing to write at home a little bit. Because like once I, if I just turn off all the lights, just lay on my bed with my Chromebook and I, I don't know, I just try to forget that I'm at home. I just try not to think about where I'm at at all. 
and just open the thing up. And usually I'll just play on the, you know, in the side video, something. Just like a person walking around a foreign city video. Like once I'm there, once I'm there with the Chromebook open and I start working on stuff, it doesn't go so bad. But I guess what's also good about the going for a walk thing is like, it's just hard to make that transition. It's very hard to turn off my computer, to turn off all the lights, to go across the room with my other computer, with my little writing Chromebook, and to get started. Once I get started, it's not so bad. It's just so much easier to disconnect completely, go for a walk, and then, you know, next thing you know, I'm in the middle of the woods, sitting on my camping chair, and, you know, I got nowhere else to go. It's going to take another hour to walk back home. So, I mean, let's just do some writing. And by then, usually my brain has concocted some thought that makes me want to do writing. That transition is so much easier, where it's just very tough at home. But I've been getting a little better at it just because, you know, there are just days where there's no other option. But the last thing I wanted to mention in this preamble is I was doing a little bit of writing. Oh yeah, that's one thing that's funny. As it stands, it looks like this book is going to be 51 chapters. You know, like I have a lot of stuff planned out, but not to that degree. So I really didn't know how many chapters it was going to be. It just happens to be 51. And as much as I talk about like the sanctity of inspiration, and, you know, this book, letting the book be what it must be and making it as good as possible and not, uh, you know, I'm definitely not following blueprints or plans or... It really is just all instinct. Whatever I feel is right for this story is how I'm doing this particular book. So it would be crazy to just throw away a chapter, right? But 51 is such an awkward number, you know? Like, who knows what's gonna happen when I'm doing editing. Maybe I'll cut a whole bunch of chapters. Maybe a bunch of this book will just get thrown away. But if it really is 51 chapters, man, it's tempting to just be like, can I get rid of one of these just to make it a nice, clean 50? I mean, I do remember one of the early ones, I think it's chapter 14. Even at the time, I left a note in it of like, I'm really, I kind of don't like this chapter. It's a lot of reminiscing about Surratt's aunt. And even at the time, I was like, this might have to go. So I got one in the chamber, ready to be excised. And I really think I might do it. <laughs> but I'm probably overthinking this. I have a feeling editing is going to be a wild time where a bunch of wacky shit's going to happen that I don't expect. In fact, uh, Brianna Mariah's podcast, the Teaching Myself to Write Novels podcast, She's been talking about that recently, about working with editors and how different it is from how she expected it to be, how different it is from writing a first draft. It's very interesting to hear about because I'm rapidly approaching that point myself. So if you have not caught up on the Teaching Myself to Write Novels podcast by Brianna Mariah, go do it. Because she's at a pretty interesting place where she finished the novel she was working on and sent it out for queries and stuff, then started working on a second story and now she's thinking maybe that second story will be the one to really come together. It's just interesting because we both have definitely different approaches to writing. 
And the timeline is radically different. I couldn't be more slow. I'm the slowest person in the fucking earth. So it's very neat to have a little uh, view of what might be coming up next. So I guess that's the little update is uh, <laughs> I've uh, upgraded my ability to write outside now that I'm writing on a, a proper Chromebook keyboard and I've got my little collapsible camping chair so I can just go sit anywhere and not have to worry about the horrible weather. And on extremely inhospitable days, I'm even learning how to write at home a little bit. And then on the grander scale, I'm uh, slowly, gradually making my peace with the fact that coffee shops ain't all that. Other cities I can live without if I have to, which I do. And that hiking through the woods in Fukuoka is really not that different from hiking through the woods here. So I just gotta accept What's going on? Accept my place, accept my fate. Thank God I did all that traveling right before Corona. Man, thank God my friend Brad went to Japan because like that's what gave me the chutzpah to make that trip, you know, is because I knew someone there. Otherwise, you know, I'm sure I would have gone someday, but I would have put it off, would have put it off. And in this case, putting it off is disastrous because <laughs> then the whole world shut down. I did that shit just in time. But anyway, there's part one. Now let's take a little break and we'll go to part two that I recorded earlier about that really long chapter. Let's split it up with, uh... I played that little 30 second song last time by the band, uh, Dillinger Escape Plan. Not the Dillinger Escape Plan, the Dillinger Four. I don't know why there's so many bands in the same approximate genre with the name Dillinger in their title. I like that song so much that I started digging through their stuff and they really give me that feeling of like 90s and early 2000s punk shows where man, that was a thing. Speaking of this hometown, like I would go to these little tiny punk shows in this town when I was a youngin. And they were so fun and so awesome, but they hardly ever happened because this city's not that big. And I thought that was going to be one of the best parts about moving to bigger cities. But it never felt the same. Like, there were a lot more shows, but everyone kind of took them for granted. They weren't, like, precious like they were here. And now that I look back upon my concert-going history, it's like, man, the best punk shows I ever went to. I had some good ones in big cities, but my favorite ones were just these weird little ones in this town, which I never would have guessed at the time. But this song, I think it's called like Eye Contact in an Elevator, reminds me so much of those days. It just feels like those days of just like small town punk shows. It's cool songs. Anyway, let's listen to that and then hear the rest of my rambling. That works though. I feel a lot better now. Just saying all that stuff out loud and then uh, you know, once I sit down and edit this podcast and put it out, and then I'll listen back to it after I upload it to just make sure everything went okay. And I feel like that, like, echo chamber effect of saying this stuff out loud and then hearing myself say it back to me kind of helps reinforce stuff sometimes. It's like, yep, this is the sitch, man. This is what's happening. It uh, takes it from just this amorphous, 
indistinct stress that I'm feeling and malaise into more of a concrete like, yeah, okay, not everything's perfect, but here's what it is, which feels a lot better. Hello, how to welcome to <laughs> Hello, welcome to How to Write a Novel. This is going to be kind of a weird episode. It's late at night. It's dark as fuck out. I mean, it's only quarter to 9, but in the middle of winter in Canada, that feels very dark and late. I have not seen another human being in some time. It's quite cold out. I'm getting Closer and closer and closer to the end of my novel. So fucking close. So close. I think it might be like three more chapters. It's so close. But what I wanted to talk about is this chapter I just finished because it is the second hardest chapter in the whole book. The first hardest chapter, if you want to hear about that, um... It's the chapter I was working on as I got back from Japan and then went back to Vancouver. I think I specifically talked about it in, uh, man, what was that episode called? It was, if I remember right, it was the episode after the Evangelion one. So there's an episode called Evangelion, You Will Be Inelegant. I think it's the one after that where I was walking home stoned because my friend Katie came, was out in the West Coast and we hung out and I don't smoke much and had a long walk home. So I recorded a podcast to keep myself company. But I remember that chapter was so difficult because it was where I was trying to explain what happened. The titular explosion in this book. What happened to this planet? And it's this idea that a sort of being from another dimension. They opened up a dimensional rift to the scientists of the rhino planet and uh, the whole center of their planet just basically got snatched into this other dimension and it made the whole planet implode and collapse. Maybe the book should be called Implode, but it's not. (laughs) But it's one of those things that it's like, 
it is relevant to the story, but also not super relevant, you know? It's just like, there's no more, you know, there's no dealing with the, the being from the other dimension. If that ever happens, it's in a future book. It's just the reason why this happened. But it's so outside of the scope of the rest of the novel. It's just such a, suddenly I'm like throwing in this bizarre fairy tale story of this crazy thing from another dimension and trying to explain how it's real. And it's really quite a weird chapter. And that chapter was so hard that I scrapped the whole thing after weeks of struggling with it and just started over. And I never did that before and I haven't done that since. So that was definitely the hardest chapter. Where this chapter, it was just a, just a trudge, just a straight through desperate fucking... <laughs> well, it's chipping at the rock wall. This was just at a very, very big rock wall. And my chipping was extremely ineffective. Like, there were no rock slides. I just had to chip my way through the whole fucking thing. Because this is the chapter where it's just Surratt the Rhino Girl watching the footage of her planet exploding. And I thought I would just talk about it a bit, about these extremely difficult chapters. I always uh, split my chapters into pieces. Well, I guess initially I didn't. When things were just flowing really quick at the start, I would just write a chapter. And yeah, I remember I had a chapter early on back in Vancouver where I split the chapter in half because it was getting um, way too overwhelming. So I just split it in half, part A, part B, to make it easier to deal with. And then by the time I was in Toronto, that's when I started splitting the chapters into pieces, multiple pieces, and I would call them like part 100, part 200, part 300, part 400, just so I have a lot of space in the middle to break it apart more if I need to. Anyway, this chapter is 20 parts, 20, which is ludicrous, you know? Even my really tough, weird, awkward chapters are usually like six or seven parts. 20. This chapter has been a bitch and a half. Which is not coincidental because, again, it's getting to the end of the book is just feeling very, very hard. You know, I mean, like, shit, when this is done, okay, editing time, you know. I'm relatively confident that'll go okay, but it's a little worrisome too. I mean, take this chapter, you know, 20 different pieces. And then I put them all together and I moved on. It's like, I don't want to edit now, I'll just move on. But what if this thing is fucked up? What if it is a mess? 20 different sub parts that I just put together? What are the chances that this chapter is not a disaster? And it's like chapter 48. You know, there's going to be 50, 51, 52 chapters of this book. Aye, aye, aye. <laughs> Editing is gonna, it's gonna be a lot easier than writing the first time through, but it's not gonna be easy. And then after that, oh, you know, then it's real world time. Uh-oh, time to send out stuff and get rejected and realize the cruel, crushing reality of the world and, oh, a million and one reasons to feel resistance and to not want to fucking get to the end of this shit. So that's making this chapter go slow, but also this chapter is just a really tough one because this is the first time she's watching footage of her planet exploding, which she did see in person the day it happened. She was on an escape pod. She just left the planet, but you know, that was like shell shock. She doesn't even remember how she got onto the space station she's on. The whole thing was just boom, just a wave, an overwhelming wave where this is deliberately sitting down and forcing herself to watch 
And this is, yeah, just the big, uh, oof, you know, like, this was the thing where I had this sort of big idea about how this chapter was going to go a couple of Christmases ago based upon how terrible it felt to be back around my schizophrenic brother and to realize how bad things still are and always will be and like what's what's going to happen with this situation it's nothing but a fucking horrible nightmare but realizing that being upset about it feels like the mature way to be but I've been doing that for 20 years and it hasn't fucking helped what if I go the other way what if I just bite down on the fact that like what if I don't care what if I don't care what if I just say fuck this I don't care just pretend he's already fucking dead what about that and ultimately it just doesn't work I'm not really able to do that necessarily it helped in the moment but you know it's like obviously that's just that's just crazy talk that's not that's not how a non-sociopath can actually live however the character in this book who's to say she's a non-sociopath she might be a downright psychopath i don't fucking know she's an alien it's like uh if you've ever seen the show the orville it's like the uh star trek type show that seth MacFarlane made it's a really good show surprisingly good like you'd think like star trek with jokes might not be that great but it's the best it's the best star trek show since star trek the next generation and there's these aliens in it called the Mocklin, who are basically klingons and i love that that show is willing to make the aliens be alien they have so many terrible fucking weird prejudices and horrible things that they do they claim to be a single sex species that they're all male but they're not women get born and they forcibly do like sex reassignment surgery on them and it's just this horrible fucked up race of creatures but they explain why they are that way and the history on their planet that led to this and when they have these big grand debates about you can't do that that's not proper to the union and its philosophies they actually do a really good job of making these Mocklin people have counter arguments <laughs> you know that kind of makes sense and you're like wow yeah because they're aliens aliens aren't us aliens aren't human so that's all just to say Sarat the rhino girl you know these like fleeting fanciful notions I have about yeah what if I did this what if I did this badass thing what if I did this crazy self-destructive thing what if I breathed smoke what if I used diesel gasoline to fuel my life metaphorically speaking like yeah 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 it's not gonna happen guy it doesn't work but it might work for her I like the idea that that Surratt the rhino girl has this I've never said it directly but I think like to kind of sum up her philosophy of life it's like everybody wants to you know do the healthy thing mentally and physically eat the healthy food burn the healthy fuels have the healthy thoughts move in the healthy direction but if you do the unhealthy thing if you eat the unhealthy food and you burn the unhealthy fuel and you just are a crazy fucking scourge across life it's not like you're going to just drop dead. 
you're still going to live for a long fucking time. Like, if you just need to propel yourself, you can do that by burning garbage. (laughs) You know? You don't have to live forever. So basically, I got her staring at this footage of her planet and going through all this, going through these thought processes and thinking about kind of getting from the place of instead of just being overwhelmed by the enormity of all the people who died, kind of coming to this crazy place of like having to just accept that feeling bad for them is not helpful. And in fact, as fucked up as it sounds, she kind of has to accept that she is more important than them because she's still here. They're all dead. The circumstances don't really matter. The reality is she's here and they're not. So at some point she's just got to say, I don't want to feel like this anymore. Fuck you guys. I can't bring you back. It's not worth feeling like this anymore. So an extremely hard chapter to write. And I could tell you how many words it is now that it's all the 20 pieces are combined into the official first draft. You know, I could bring it up on the fucking little computer and find out, but, but I, I mean, I've brought this up before, but I just want to briefly touch on it again. I'm not going to because I don't know what that means. Like, I, I literally, I'm not trying to be like some fucking writing hipster. I literally don't know what that means. If I give you a number, what does that number mean? What if I said 2,000? What if I said 8,000? What if I said 10,000? What if I said 4,000? What the fuck does that mean? What does it matter? (laughs) What is the relevance of that measurement? I don't understand it. Everybody talks about, about word counts. And I feel like, like if you ask like, hey, it's fucking pretty cold outside. Oh yeah, how cold is it? Oh, it's like 11 and a half feet cold. You know, I'd be like, okay, I mean, I guess that's cold, right? I guess it's cold out. But, you know, that's what I feel like when people use word counts to describe stories. It's like you're using the wrong measurement. You're using a measurement that doesn't actually fit with what you're talking about. And I know people would say like, well, no, that's not the case because there are words in a story and you can count them. It's completely appropriate. But I was trying to think of times in my entire life, times that word count has ever mattered. Not just for me, but that I've ever heard of, ever. And I thought of two. The first was when I was in high school, and they made us read Charles Dickens. Uh, Tale of Two Cities, was it? Oliver Twist? I don't know. Who gives a shit? (laughs) Anyway, I did not like it. I was not a fan. And I remember bringing that up round the dinner table and I remember my dad was like oh I like that story but my mom brought up like oh yeah well of course it's like wordy and full of fucking filler because it was originally published serialized in like I don't know if it was in the newspaper or in a magazine or something but but it was a serial and he got paid by the word and I was like oh all right well I guess that explains why it's so fucking boring but that has zero relevance to my fucking life you know That's not important. That's literally the Dickensian era when Dickens was writing shit by the word. That's not relevant anymore. 
But a more recent example, and by more recent, I mean like fucking 40 years ago, but when The Stand came out, Stephen King's book, The Stand, which is a great book. I highly recommend it. Bad ending, but, you know, I think worth it, despite the bad ending. Haven't read it in a long time, but I would happily read it again, and I will sometime. But when that book first came out, it was so fucking big. You know, Stephen King was famous, but he wasn't quite famous enough that they were willing to put out a trillion fucking page book. <laughs> so they edited it. It had too many words. So they did an edited version, but then it was such a big hit and Stephen King only got more and more and more famous that eventually they just put out the full book anyway, and that's the one you can get now. So that's another case. If you are a publisher, if you are a publisher of paper books and you're concerned about how big they are, perhaps word count matters. So, you know, maybe you're an editor working for a publishing house. Maybe you're a publisher. Maybe you've time-traveled to 1973, and maybe the word count matters. <laughs> you know, I know it sounds like I'm being a dick here, but I honestly do not understand the obsession with word count, because those are the only times I can think of, and they're not relevant. Nowadays, you know, bigger is better if you go to the fantasy section. These books are fucking enormous. And paper books are becoming less and less of a thing anyway. It's probably digital. So, yeah, word count. Just, I mean, you know, do what you do. If you're into word counts, go ahead. Like, you know, whatever. But it, it just, I like roll my eyes when I hear about it. I don't know what it means. I don't understand the relevance of this. But why I want to bring all this up is I actually do have one one potential actual reason why maybe word counts could be counterproductive. It's uh, Ellen Brock, who I mentioned way back in the day. She's an editor who has a YouTube channel. And she posted some stuff about different types of writers. So this in particular is the methodological pantser, which I'm not sure if that's what I am, but maybe, where it's like you do have a method and you do have a structure to what you do, but you come up with a lot of it as you go. I mean... I don't know, when she describes there's like four different types of writers, four quadrants, and I kind of feel like I'm right in the middle, but maybe that just means I don't recognize myself. <laughs> maybe I failed to recognize what I am. But in Ellen Brock's video about methodological pantsers, she brought up a good uh, point about word counts and how that can kind of get in the way. If you use word counts to gauge how productive you're being and how things are progressing, it can gum things up during editing because you've trained yourself to think more words are better. So if, say you gotta really rip into something when you're editing, say you gotta cut 10,000 words, to me, I would not give one fuck. I wouldn't even know that I had just cut 10,000 words, you know? I would just, if it's not right, it's not right. If it's not working, it's not working. You know, as I say in my hoity-toity way, to me, it's moment to moment to moment. And if the moment isn't flowing properly into the next moment, then it's got to change or it's got to go. But if you just think about things primarily as word count, it's going to really fuck up your ability to cut those 10,000 words because you're going to feel like you just lost 10,000 words. Instead of feeling like you've strengthened the story or that you've gotten rid of a, a sidetracked appendage that wasn't necessary, you're going to be like, fuck, dude, I lost 10,000 words. And I thought that was a good point. I don't know, just something to keep in mind. 
don't get too attached to the numbers because the numbers don't matter ultimately. No reader in the world is thinking about the numbers of the words. Like, they don't care. No one talks about the word count of books except writers. You know? <laughs> it's like you're too deep in. You're just, you're not seeing the forest for the trees here. That's my latest rant on word counts. So yeah, like I said, if I told you the, the amount of words this chapter is, it doesn't mean anything. What I can tell you is it's fucking big. It's real big. That's a measurement that is relevant. That matters. Compared to the average size of a chapter, this chapter is a lot more big. This is a big boy. This is a biggin. And now let me stop pacing in a circle. I got my little Chromebook open here. Let me bring it up. All right, change of plans. My original plan was to sit on this little bench and open up my little Chromebook and go through the parts of the chapter just to kind of, uh, as a little demonstration of like the twists and turns of this horribly long chapter. But when I'm not pacing around ranting to myself, as soon as I sit down, I sat down on this thing and opened up the fucking file and it's like, it actually is very fucking cold out here. I think I gotta get out of here. <laughs> so we'll adjourn here, but I will return to finish the podcast when it's not the freezing cold middle of the night. All right, it's a couple of days later. I'm hopping across a semi-frozen stream. <laughs> so you might hear me fall into freezing water in real time. Oh, shit, like I literally <laughs> almost fucked up already. But yeah, my original plan, whoa, for this episode. Oh man, you can see, I mean, I don't know what animal this is like a raccoon or something maybe, but they had the same thought as me, that this seems like the easiest way across the stream. Kind of makes me proud when, uh, cause like if I see animal tracks and I'm kind of semi lost in the woods, you know, it's a good thing to follow. It's better than nothing, but it's kind of neat when I'm not following on purpose. Like I inadvertently just had the same, I figured out something that a wild animal figured out. Man, the illusion too of this uh, this park is a lot less illusory once all the trees have uh, lost their their leaves. Because you know, it's uh, I'm always complaining about how I can hear traffic from in here because we're not really that far from the city. But yeah, now if you're in the wrong spot. You can just see, you can see straight through these spindly trees and at night you can see like, oh, there's a street light over there. That's a bummer. It's a lot kind of cooler in the summer when it's uh, more of a, just a green, a green illusion, an illusion of the forest. Oh shit, there's a side stream, a smaller stream that attaches to this stream. I wonder where that comes from where that originates. Maybe I should just like do a stream trek one of these days. 
Anyway, my original plan for this episode was I was gonna go through this gigantic chapter in my 20 parts and describe all the 20 parts, but I think that was really just because I was just jazzed that I'd finished it. I was excited. Oh, fuck. Holy shit. There's like thorns on this? Get the fuck out of here, bitch. What the hell? It like won't come off of my hood. Are you kidding? What the fuck? That thing was incredibly thorny. But yeah, I was just excited that I finished the chapter. So I'm like, oh, I should talk about all the parts. But now that I'm looking at them again, it's like, oh, that would actually be boring as shit. Because I already described, you know, the overarching point of it. And I've actually described a ton of this stuff over the past few episodes. You know, it's just the staring at the screen, going through the mental processes. It was a long and difficult chapter, but not like a lot of action going on. Really, the point I guess I wanted to try to make is for anyone who might be in my same very specific circumstances, if you're getting toward the end of a book and everything is feeling very difficult and everything's going really slow, I think one way you can look at it, which I just realized with this chapter, is like I was saying, like early on I would just write chapters straight through with no particular problem, and then I started splitting the chapters into halves, into an A and a B, just to make them a little more digestible, and then that turned into six or seven pieces, and now at this point that's 20 pieces. But I think that's a way to explain why it took so long is because, in a sense, I didn't just write one chapter. In a way, it's like I just wrote 20 chapters. You know, just because everything is tougher and going slower, so just the... It's like you're spinning the little lens on a microscope, you know? Just like, we're zoomed in to a different degree at this point. And if you look at this as 20 little chapters instead of just one chapter, I mean, yeah, it took me ages to do this, but, you know, each one of those 20 sub-chapters was, whatever, a few days. Maybe a week if it was really going bad. So, of course, it took forever. There was 20 of them. You know, even if I did one in two or three days, two or three days times 20 is fucking forever. And again, when I look at things that way, I remember early on, I was really surprised that how fast things were going, because I didn't feel like I was doing that much work. And it's like, wow, I'm already at chapter, like, 14 or whatever, and it's only been three months. In a way, I actually kind of felt that way about this, too, when I started looking at it that way, instead of just, how is this going so slow? Now it's like, that actually is not that bad, if you look at it as 20 chapters. Because it's, it's obviously not. It's not 20 chapters worth of writing. But it's 20 chapters worth of effort. It's 20 chapters worth of mentally taxing work. And it doesn't feel like I was working that hard on it, because I'm just doing what I always do. I just finished my writing for the day. It's very cold today, so I just typed for as long as I could. It was probably a solid 10, 12 minutes, <laughs> you know? But that's fine. That'll do. And that adds up. All that stuff adds up at a remarkably fast pace. No matter how slow you work, when you work every day, it's crazy how fast it all adds up. Like, if I look at this chapter as 20 chapters, it's like, man, not bad. <laughs> you know? This little bit of daily work 
got me through 20 parts 20 it's nuts no one reading this book will ever know that that chapter was 20 parts because to them it'll just be a chapter but that's how I broke it up just so that my brain wouldn't freak out and shut down and just a little bit every day like it gets you through it'll get you through no matter how fucked up shit is how tough it is how confusing it is a little bit every day will just get you through that barrier will just keep you trudging forward <laughs> and if that particular advice has never inspired you before it's certainly not going to start now in episode 147 of this podcast but presumably it's been of some use if you're still listening so here it is yet again one more time slow and steady wins the race and then the next chapter you know I've got pretty much everything laid out now from here to the end of the book there's only a few more chapters to go and I had this chapter where it was like the final big argument between Surat and Quelem. And I was looking it over and I'm like, oh no, this isn't right. Like after spending all this time slaving away on the previous chapter, just being so deep in Surratt's poor addled brain while she tries to watch footage of her planet exploding, I'm very much on that wavelength now for this next chapter. And it makes no sense for her to be angry and argumentative. She doesn't have it in her. She doesn't have that energy. She doesn't have that... Those vibes are not present. So I was just looking through my notes and it's like, oh shit, this is a disaster. The like eight or nine big notes I had set aside for this chapter, there's two of them that I like. And I'm like, uh-oh, <laughs> what am I supposed to do here? I thought I had everything laid out, but am I going to have to go back and dig through my notes or am I just going to have to come up with stuff out of whole cloth because what I got here is not appropriate. Which is a little weird because it's not bad stuff. It's like clever little arguments and little interspecies battles they could have about various topics. And it's kind of like, oh man, I guess this stuff is not making it in. It's never going in because this was the last chance. And she is not... She's not going to have petty arguments after just watching this horrible shit that she just watched. It's not going to happen. She's just not going to talk at all if it comes down to that. So this is a, a good example too of how, how I'm such a centralist about planning and inspiration. I do think a plan is a good idea, an ending is especially a good idea, but I think there's limits to how far ahead a person can plan. Because even in this case, just the difference from this chapter, last chapter to this chapter, it feels different. It doesn't feel the same anymore. My plan is no longer appropriate. But luckily, I was like, well, let me look at these other chapters. What else have I got set up here? And I do have a chapter where instead of arguing, the two of them have a nice day. I thought that could be cool. Right before the big climactic explosive finale, maybe they just really do get along just for one day. And you'd think I would know that. You'd think I'd be aware of what's coming since there's so few chapters left. But I just spent months 
in the psycho pit of trying to deal with this one ridiculous chapter. So like I said, the uh, one chapter being 20, that's how it feels. Once it telescopes out to 20, of course I forgot what's coming in the next two or three chapters because they felt like they were 22 or 23 chapters away. The distance grew greatly. But that's good because I, I didn't do it today because my fingers are freezing off. But it's like, all right, today I deleted all the notes that are not useful. And I saw a clear path for tomorrow. For tomorrow, read through all the notes for the upcoming chapters. Because chances are I'll just combine those two. There just will only be this one chapter. There's not an argument chapter and a getting along chapter. There's just the getting along chapter. And I think that's how it's going to go. Just a little final whiplash of like, she's really chilled out because of putting herself through this brutal thing of watching her planet explode. The two of them are, are getting along more, but she's still very much of the opinion like, you can't just stay here, guy. You're better than this. You should be doing something with your life, you know? Like, what? what's your plan? And his plan really is just to stay there for his whole life. But then she's gonna go back to the well one more time. <laughs> go back to the what exactly did happen with my planet well. And that's when she finds out that the Nadarian, the jellyfish folk, it's not their fault. It's the crazy space being from beyond <laughs> that caused her planet to blow up. But they're here to observe. They knew it was going to happen and they set up this whole station just to watch everybody die. And she's going to be real upset. Oh, man, it's fucking cold. <laughs> Jesus Christ. <laughs> My fingers are dying. This is weird though. This is so like neat kind of. Of this. Uh, pulling out the Chromebook and just typing for as long as I can before my fingers fucking are about to die. Because it's not a lot of time, but when is it ever? When do I ever spend a lot of time writing? <laughs> you know? <laughs> it's just a little bit. And yeah, it's, uh, it's remarkable that this is working, even now that it's getting very fucking cold. So I think that'll do for this episode. Back across these rocks. Uh, for Song of the Day, I'm going to play a band called Smudge. I was reminded of Smudge because it's uh, the whatever-ith anniversary of their album Manilow. 25, maybe? It's, I don't know, long-ass time. But they're like this power-pop, kind of garage-rock-sounding band from Australia that I've run into a couple Australians in my life who also knew Smudge, and they were surprised that I knew them. And I was like, yeah, why do I know Smudge? I mean, I know the guy, the main guy, he wrote a bunch of songs with uh, Evan Dando from the Lemonheads. I think that's how I originally heard of them. But it got cleared up a little bit when I was doing a little research that one of the Smudge albums, it was called Tea Toast and Turmoil, it turns out it's just a compilation of a bunch of their early EPs. And it was specifically made for the Canadian market. How weird is that, right? Because, I mean, I had that album, <laughs> so it worked. They made this Canadian-only release, and I fucking had it. And there's, like, a little bit of a Canada-Australia connection. Like, if you go the other way, we had this band, our 90s band was called The Tea Party. 
And after they kind of uh, faded away a little bit in Canada, I saw somewhere that it's like, hey, you know, their albums are like selling really well in Australia. <laughs> it's like, huh. I wouldn't say there's a strong connection between Canada and Australia because we're very far away from each other. But, you know, there's that having the queen on your money shit. There's a little bit. So anyway, I'm going to play this song, Dave the Talking Bear, just because it's a really catchy little fucking song. And this is what I love so much about Smudge. The guy's name is Tom Morgan. He's such an amazing songwriter because this song is two minutes long and it just takes you on a whole little journey. It's fucking awesome. But I don't know why it's called Dave the Talking Bear. I don't know what that means. So I thought I would look up the lyrics. Like, I don't know, I should just read these lyrics. Maybe there's something going on here that's more obvious. And I couldn't even find the lyrics. Like, you know, all those lyrics websites? I could not find Smudge. So yeah, like, pretty obscure band, but very excellent. I like them a lot. So here's Dave the Talking Bear by Smudge. Thank you for listening. I'll talk to you next time. But uh, yeah, one other tiny little thing I want to mention. On these extremely cold days, and there's been like a ton of snowfall lately, I noticed something really cool the other day where it's like, you know, you don't really think about air much. It's just everywhere. You're just in the air. But air, you know, obviously planes can fly through it and birds can fly and shit. It's kind of like a liquid. And it was weird how obvious that seemed when there was all of this powdery snow on all these trees because... I was walking around in this insane minus 20 day and powdery snow kept falling off the trees and it looked exactly like when you pour salt into a glass of water, but it was just this powdery snow falling through 
the air. And it's like, wow, like through the medium of this snow, I can see the air, you know? Like all of a sudden it felt like, like I'm underwater, like I'm just walking through liquid. <laughs> it's just so cool. <laughs> it was just a cool day. That's apropos of nothing, but 